The time is now. Volume 7, episode 131. This is Employment Law Now, and I am Mike Schmidt, the host of this podcast and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department. It is really hard to go a day these days, whether in your professional or business lives or in your personal lives, for that matter, without hearing or reading something about artificial intelligence or generative artificial intelligence it is quite literally everywhere and not going away anytime soon. Uh, I have devoted, as you all know, uh, a few of my more recent podcast episodes to certain legal and technical aspects of AI, and I will be referring to artificial intelligence as AI. Uh, a two-parter that I did just this past March 27th and April 11th, you all know that because I'm sure you all listened to it from start to finish. Uh, and those followed an episode I did all the way back on January 15th, 2020, on the use of AI in recruiting. That was even pre-pandemic, and it's hard to believe that seems like it was a decade ago when you talk about pre-pandemic days. Obviously, it is such a big enough issue now, and one that requires uh, thought and analysis beyond just the labor and employment world, which is where I've been treating this so far, that I wanted to devote this entire extended episode to a roundtable discussion with a rather large roundtable. Today, with some thought leaders from multiple practice areas, not just labor and employment. Uh, and although much of the discussion in today's episode is going to presume some basic working knowledge of the terms AI and generative AI, I still think it's a good idea to set the table with those definitions so we're all talking about the same things. For several years now, I think most people have been talking about various branches of AI that are referred to as machine learning or big data or data analytics. At the risk of oversimplifying, those branches involve essentially humans providing large amounts of data to machines and tools, and then having those machines and tools recognize patterns in the data, which will then make decisions or predictions based on the patterns that have been detected. What we used to contemplate is potentially happening sometime in the future, and what we are now beginning to see as uh, the future being now is another branch of AI, which is generative AI. Like its name suggests, generative AI generates wholly new content, whether it's text, video, images, from the data that the machine or the tool is trained on, rather than simply using the data to make predictions based on patterns generating content that companies can use, but also that employees can use either on their own personal time or to perform certain job responsibilities uh, in some cases. This past November 2022, a company called OpenAI released a first-of-its-kind tool called ChatGPT, which essentially generates new content using what is called a large language model, or LLM, a different use of the acronym LLM. And the, uh, that responds to natural language queries that have human-like intelligent responses. Again, it is generative AI that creates original content and not simply predictions based on already existing content or data. Many of you have likely read that just last week, OpenAI released a free version of its ChatGPT app for iPhones, which will only exponentially increase the millions of people who are already using the web-based version. The benefits and the risks of generative AI are significant, and we may not even fully understand the scope of either of those buckets, but we know that there are multiple legal areas impacted here, and so I am really happy that I have multiple esteemed colleagues in those practice areas to help talk through some of these questions today, and I want to introduce them to you very quickly. As I said, a large roundtable, but you will all benefit from this. 
First, from the labor and employment perspective, I've got two of my great colleagues, John Carrigan, who is in our labor and employment department uh, out of the Santa Monica, California office, and one of the leaders on our uh, labor and employment AI practice team. Janice Agresti, uh, also a colleague in the labor and employment department out of our New York office, where I am. Uh, she is also one of the leaders on our L&E AI practice team. Taking this from the corporate and privacy angle, uh, we've got my great colleague, Andy Baer, who is the chair of the Technology, Privacy, and Data Security Practice Group, resident in our firm's Philadelphia office. Moving around the table from the intellectual property angle, we've got our great colleague, Lisa Ferrari, who uh, is in our intellectual property department and the co-chair of the copyright practice here in New York. And last but definitely not least, looking at these things from a regulatory and public strategies angle, we've got our great colleague Varun Krovi, who is based in our Washington, D.C. office. We are representing all parts of the country here. Varun is a senior principal of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies, one of our law firm's ancillary businesses, who advises clients on a broad spectrum of legislative issues. So now let me take a breath. Uh, and let's get started with these terrific guests. Let's I, let's start initially with some of the labor and employment issues to think about. And Janice, I want to start with you. Uh, from a 30,000-foot standpoint, Janice, what concerns are employers expressing regarding the use of generative AI in the employment law space? Thanks, Mike. Uh, pleasure to be here today with you all. Um, you know, one of the things here is that this 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 is really a fast and furious development, if you will, in this space. It came very quickly. It's it's really becoming a very uh, largely used tool throughout many different areas. And so, one of the concerns is, you know, do we ignore it? Do we do something about it? And, and you know, obviously, ignoring it is not the way to go here. And so, doing something about it is really the way to go. But that then lends itself to the question, well, what are we going to do about it? Do we want to police its usage? Do we want to have policies on its usage? Do we maybe not want to allow it at all? Is it is it in its infancy? And then maybe we don't feel comfortable with allowing it at this moment in time. So it's really a concern regarding conversations internally regarding what they want to do, you know, what an employer wants to do about it, to what extent they want to control it and how they want to control it, if at all. Um, and so obviously, if you are controlling it, if you are going to create policies, what do those look like? You know, that's that's another question. And, and the last, you know, branch here is really about training and compliance. If we are going to have employees use these these technologies, then let are we should we train them? Should we train as to its limitations and, and how it actually should be used? Should we allow all employees to use it? And, and another thought, obviously, is the compliance piece, because there are obviously some jurisdictions that have developing laws regarding compliance um, in terms of training, recruiting, hiring, et cetera, in this space. So there's obviously a lot of things to consider here, Mike, uh, regarding what, you know, what to do next. And, and employers are really thinking about these questions um, and have concerns about how to move forward. That's great. And we'll definitely get into uh, some of those in a little bit more detail. Uh, John, you know, there is a lot of concern that generative AI may make certain jobs obsolete. I hear that all the time, that uh, people's fear is that their jobs are no longer going to be existing. And we're worried that all these robots or computers and machines are coming in and doing what we do. Um, is that what we're really talking about? And do you anticipate, for example, uh, just moving it into the specific uh, labor negotiations with unions to be impacted by this generative AI issue? Well, thanks, Mike, for having me. And, and let me kind of break that into sort of two sections um, into the, the question of whether a generative AI is going to make certain jobs obsolete or reduce demand for other jobs. I, I think the answer is it certainly will reduce demand for some jobs to some extent. But I think that the idea that it's going to render a lot of jobs obsolete is maybe a little bit overblown. Uh, for many years, uh, whether it's word processing tools, uh, Google, and so forth, uh, whether it's in the legal field, real estate, medicine, all kinds of white-collar jobs, 
It's not as if all work product is something that is just artisanally created from scratch. Uh, for many years, a lot of professionals work off of models and templates and adjust them to what they need in their particular situation. Uh, you know, with product that comes from chat GPT or other generative AI, uh, in some ways it's largely the same. So for instance, if I had a, an assignment where I needed to, uh, prepare some sort of a summary of California law issues, uh, chat GPT might be able to get me a first draft, but I could also get a first draft by, you know, Google searching, uh, and then, you know, updating uh, the content. Um, and you can go back, you know, more than a hundred years kind of uh, throughout the, you know, uh, since the days of the industrial revolution, uh, when new technologies have been introduced, often there's a lot of backlash. There's a lot of people saying that this is going to make uh, tons of jobs obsolete. Uh, but what you often find is that with new technologies come new jobs that are specific to the use and implementation of that new technology. So, for instance, with generative AI, um, there is a lot of learning to be done by users of this kind of software in terms of the best way to generate prompts to get the best sort of sort of um uh, results, uh, and you can find jobs that are being created already in terms of prompt engineers. And this is a, a job that's different than a software engineer. It's more, uh, geared toward people who have maybe a, uh, uh, degree in English, you know, backgrounds like that in terms of language usage and so forth. So yes, certain tasks will, will become less, uh, there'll be a little bit less of a need, I think, for human workers. Uh, but I think that the idea that it's going to totally wipe out um, a whole lot of industries uh, and a whole lot of jobs is maybe a little bit overblown at this point. Um, and then moving on to the issue of, you know, what is there to expect with respect to labor unions and negotiations? Well, we're already seeing this quite a bit uh, in the WGA strike. You know, the writers um, have uh, sent out some demands with respect to the use of AI, <laughs> excuse me, where they don't want AI used to create um uh, first drafts. Uh, they also don't want AI to be trained uh, using uh, stuff that was written by members of the guild. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see, uh, you know, how successful they are in getting their uh, demands implemented there. Um, perhaps a little bit of an uh, irony here is that some of the kinds of jobs that will be most susceptible to uh, having some of their demand reduced by generative AI uh, are in fields which traditionally are not uh, organized by labor unions. For instance, I, I think you know paralegals might be an, an example. We don't, uh, you know, we don't really see a paralegals union. But some of the things that generative AI is being used for in terms of kind of putting together first passes of, of contracts and things like that are tasks that, that paralegals have done a lot in the past. So um, you know, it's possible that we may see. Um, union efforts and organizing efforts in some white-collar industries where we hadn't seen it before. And this is really not something that's completely new. I mean, over the course of American history, really, um, we've had technology and new developments uh, come about that have eliminated certain kinds of tasks, certain kinds of jobs, only to be replaced uh, by new jobs that were required by the new technology or the new form. You know, automobiles, the invention of automobiles is uh, is one example that comes to mind. So this isn't a totally new concept that we've got artificial intelligence that might eliminate the need for certain kinds of tasks and jobs. But to your point, it, it will likely create uh, other new uh, jobs and other new uh, requirements. Absolutely. So before the current discourse on generative AI started, uh, as I mentioned at the top of this episode, there's been a lot of discussion over the past few years about AI tools more generally used to conduct HR functions, for example, screening resumes or assisting with interview evaluations. The EEOC has cautioned us that the use of AI tools for those sorts of tasks can result in implicit bias among certain groups, or against certain groups, I should say. In fact, just this past Thursday, May 18th, the EEOC released a new and updated version of its technical assistance document entitled, and 
I'll read it, but it's a huge title. Assessing adverse impact in software, algorithms, and artificial intelligence used in employment selection procedures under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Oh, big title. You can get that at eeoc.gov. You could also uh, send me an email if you want me to get you a version of the new assistance document from last week. Uh, but John, from, a, again, a 30,000-foot standpoint, is there a similar concern when it comes to generative AI in terms of potential biases against certain protected classes? And, and if so, how might those sorts of implicit biases manifest themselves? Uh, yeah, there definitely is. Um, and I think that this is uh, perhaps uh, easiest to observe uh, in uh, the graphic art generating uh, generative AI. Uh, you know, for instance, if you go on, and I'm not going to list all the names of the different uh, generative AI that would do this, but I, from what I've seen, it's, it's, it is pretty much all of them or the majority of them. Uh, if you were to type in something like, give me a picture of a CEO, you are much more likely to get a picture of a middle-aged white guy in a suit. Uh, versus a, you know, more diverse representation. Or similarly, if you said, show me a picture of a flight attendant, you are more likely to get a younger female. Um, and with the pictures, it's, 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 you can see a lot. Uh, and when you're putting in prompts that are facially neutral, so for instance, I've seen people say, give me a picture of people at a party. And the people at a party, you might see, you know, nothing but white faces. Um, so that's something to be thinking about. And you can, uh, when you're looking at text-based stuff like chat GPT, I saw somebody who, who wrote an article about having done this and I tried to replicate it to myself and see if I could get a similar result. Uh, but you asked chat GPT, for instance, to give you, generate for me a list of random names. And, and what you'll see is that the random names by and large tend to be, um, you know, American sounding names, uh, generally not, uh, uh, ethnic sounding names. Um, and the more kind of variations on that experiment you do, you will see that even though you're not putting language in the prompt that, that signals give me people within a, within a certain racial background or a certain age background and, and various other characteristics, AI seems to, and this is, of course, AI is just making assumptions based off of the materials it's been trained on, but AI seems to be making assumptions and connections about what is quote-unquote normal uh, that do not reflect the level of diversity and thought about diversity uh, that our clients typically want to be making in 2023. So we do need to be thinking about uh, the kinds of issues that the EEOC is raising, uh, certainly including its most recent technical assistance document from last week, uh, when we're generating content using artificial intelligence, we can't necessarily pass the buck and blame it on the machine or the tools if there is going to be some violation of Title VII or some other federal, state, or local statute uh, from a from a, a bias standpoint. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll just add, because I, I played around with that experiment a little bit, um, you know, with the, the randomly generated list of names, um, I also said, you know, could you, for each of the names that you gave me, could you randomly generate an age? And all of the ages that it generates are kind of within a band from about mid-20s to maybe 40 or 42. Why? I, I don't know. Uh, randomly generated ages should include kids, should include older people, and so forth. And I don't know why the AI is, is making some of the assumptions and connections that it is, but they, uh, without, without asking for it and asking for something that's random, you get, sometimes get a result that does not seem random and seems to reflect some sort of, some sort of a bias. And I think people should be very cognizant of that. Just a couple of more uh, labor and employment related questions before I move on to uh, our other uh, thought leaders here on the roundtable. Janice, so if we assume that employers and employees are using AI, particularly generative AI, should employers be putting into place gen AI policies for the workplace? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and there's a lot of things here to consider, but if you know that your employees are using generative AI and if you yourself are using 
as an employer generative AI, then obviously it's very likely that everyone around you also is. And so to the extent that you want responsible usage in the workplace, I, I highly recommend because ignoring it is not going to make it go away. And this is only going to continue to grow and expand. So what makes for, uh, you know, uh, what makes for a good gen AI policy? Uh, you know, obviously you're going to tailor a lot of this to a particular company, um, its usage, its particular workforce. But um, what are the kind of components that we're looking at when we're talking about creating a generative AI policy? So obviously the first thing that someone will want to consider, an employer will want to consider is what, well, what is the thought process here? What do we want? You know, what is our approach to generative AI? And that will then inform obviously how to, you know, conduct its, its business or how to tailor the policy to, to match its business. Um, but in terms of what should be included in a good generative AI policy, obviously you want to make the user aware and, and be cognizant of the fact that they are the ultimate responsible usage or user for this technology, that there's a human who is putting forth this final product and that human is the person responsible for whatever that output ends up being. So to the extent that, you know, folks may be, being, may be relying on generative AI and say something to the effect of, well, I didn't know that it would be a discriminatory. Well, it is the responsibility of the user to make sure that it is, um, you know, not doing, you know, that it is compliant with the law. You would, should also include a section on compliance with the law to the extent that you come across anything in the technology that is problematic, you know, flagging that for the company. You want to include um, provisions regarding confidentiality, you know, the protection of confidential company information. You want to consider, you know, the transparency and accountability piece of all of this to the extent that you cannot understand why something was generated a certain way, then that's something you probably should not be using. Um, and you also want to consider whether training will be included in your policy and whether prior approval should be required for certain technologies. And, you know, something else to consider is who is the end user in the company? Who do you want using these policies? Maybe it is not all employees, maybe it's only a certain sect of employees, maybe those who are uh, maybe experts in the field and can easily look at the information that's being put into the output and can, and can spot any issues and fix any issues. Um, so obviously there's a few things to consider here, but I think the first step is deciding who you want using this generative AI and to what extent, and then building an appropriate policy from that. Interesting. Yeah, John. I would also add that sometimes it can be helpful to kind of put in some guardrails. And if there are things that you as a organization do not want generative AI use for, uh, making that clear. Uh, so an example that I'm, I'm aware of, um, a few months ago, there was a, a university who put out a statement in response to a mass shooting that had gone on uh, in another university. And it was kind of a thoughts and prayers type message. And the text of the message, there was nothing unusual or really wrong about that. But it became clear that the message had been generated by uh, an AI tool. Uh, and the university ended up uh, issuing a, an apology about it because it, it came across as, as insensitive. And it's easy to think about uh, ways in the employment context that certain messages generated by AI could really be rub, uh, rub people the wrong way and, and particularly could rub juries the wrong way. I mean, if we're looking at, for instance, documents about uh, the reasons that someone was terminated or a termination memo, uh, and then we find out and we have to, to go to court and explain, well, the manager didn't actually write this. This was, this was really generative AI that can make a company come across as, uh, you know, cold and, and un unsympathetic, I think. And so thinking about the perception that AI was used to create a particular document, uh, is something that, uh, would probably be a good idea for a lot of employers. So obviously, you know, as we're talking, it's, it, it should be clear to most listeners, I think, that for their organizations, there are definite advantages to creating a gen uh, AI policy, though I think it's also safe to say that as of now, uh, there are a lot of employers out there that don't have one yet. Um, assuming that there is no AI policy in place, John, what should an employer do then when they've got concerns about an employee's use of AI? Well, I'd look at the policies that you already have in place. Um, 
as, as a starting point, you know, most folks are, are employed at will. And if there's something that somebody has done that, that's inappropriate, regardless of whether you've got policy language on it, um, you can, you could take appropriate action with an at will employee. Uh, but there's a lot of problems that can come up with AI that may, might already be covered, uh, by policies that aren't specific to AI. For instance, we've heard stories already about people who feel like the use of chat GPT or some other software makes them so productive in their job that they might secretly uh, take on another job, another full-time job at the same time and do both. Well, lots of employers already have policies about moonlighting uh, and rules that would address potential conflicts of interest. Uh, similarly, uh, to the extent people are entering things into a generative AI that's confidential information that should not be shared online, there's oftentimes already policies addressing that. Uh, so policies on things like trade secrets and so forth. Uh, and then in addition, a lot of employers may have kind of a, a general uh, policy on on ethics. Uh, and there may be times where the use of generative AI gets into issues that would uh, violate the company's overall kind of code of ethics. And I think it's look at your existing policies because you probably have something that at least is relevant to the conversation. So when talking about the use of AI, the discussion shouldn't just be limited to the employment setting and relationship per se, but there are other questions that need to be answered as well. Uh, I'll come back, John and Janice, to both of you uh, in a little bit, but I want to shift for a moment to the corporate and privacy issues that arise here. Uh, let me bring in uh, Andy Baer. Uh, Andy, to start, what are some of the privacy issues associated with the use of AI? And uh, thanks for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Mike. As for privacy issues, personal information could be used as part of training sets for training AI. AI can also be used to build profiles on people. This is partly what the California Privacy Rights Act and other states' privacy laws have in mind by requiring impact assessments for high-risk data processing activities, and in some cases requiring opt-in consent for processing sensitive data. Retailers' use of face and body scanning technology to provide virtual try-ons of articles of clothing and accessories could raise issues under Illinois' uh, Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. Finally, the use of AI with facial recognition technology in particular is a subject of increasing regulation by cities and some states, as well as FTC scrutiny. For example, the FTC has required companies to destroy algorithms and models built using facial recognition data that the FTC said that the companies had deceptively collected or retained. Uh, so the FTC and other regulators are serious about this. This is not just, again, employer-employee, but especially for those companies that are customer-facing, client-facing, uh, the use of artificial intelligence when it impacts customers and clients uh, on the external side uh, could have some uh, real significant impacts in terms of potential liability. Absolutely. And uh, so what about uh, some other potential corporate risks to an organization when it comes to artificial intelligence? In addition to the privacy risks I, I outlined, uh, as John said, you could lose control of other sensitive information and trade secrets like source code that is uploaded to ChatGPT or some other AI platform. Uh, as was also previously mentioned, there are major issues of regulatory compliance around non-discrimination, especially when an AI is used to help make consequential decisions for human beings, like decisions involving credit, housing, employment, as we discussed, healthcare, or criminal justice. You need to make sure that any training sets are representative and that the algorithm doesn't simply replicate uh, the discriminatory biases of its human creators. Ensuring consumers the right access to human beings and human supervision of the AI are also important. In addition to ensuring that all data inputs are representative, AI developers should audit the AI's performance and test its output according to some recognized accountability framework, for example, the NIST framework that was recently issued. And of course, um, there are also all the various IP issues, which Lisa is going to take us through. Yeah, that's a great uh, segue uh, into Lisa's segment here. Before I get there, um, I do want to ask you, Andy, whether there are any unique issues that you have encountered when contracting for the development or licensing of AI. Certainly. Representations, warranties, and indemnities around compliance with laws are 
common parts of any commercial contract, uh, certainly any technology contract, but they have some unique nuances in the AI scenario. So if I'm representing a buyer or a user of AI, I want the seller to protect me if my intended use case for the AI results in a discrimination proceeding or a lawsuit, or in a worst case scenario, some sort of regulatory order to stop using the algorithm or the data output of the algorithm. So I want the seller to warrant and indemnify for legal compliance, both in the design of the algorithm and the data used to train it. And I also want them to warrant that they've designed and trained the algorithm using some sort of recognized accountability framework, like the NIST framework I just mentioned. I also want robust audit rights with respect to any documentation concerning training or testing. So let's look at it from the other side. If I'm representing the seller or developer of an AI technology, I'm kind of looking at this like I would look at cybersecurity. Given that the law is so inchoate right now and some risks are simply unknowable, I don't want to be forced to guarantee 100% freedom from issues in every instance. Rather, I'd want to make more limited reps and warranties about what specific measures I've taken to address algorithmic bias. Finally, if the buyer provided any of the training data, I would also want them to take responsibility for that piece in terms of warranties and indemnities. Interesting. So let's go over to uh, to you, Lisa. Lisa Ferrari, thank you as well for joining this uh, great big roundtable. Because um, when we talk about licensing issues, I think that is a good segue to some other intellectual property issues that uh, organizations should be considering Lisa, uh, to start us off, what are some of the first impression issues from an IP perspective uh, arising from generative AI? So thank you for having me, Mike. And I think Andy sort of teed it up with some of the concerns on the privacy side. On the on the IP side, what you're what we are looking at and waiting for guidance from courts um, is both on the input side of AI and then on the output side. So on the input side, what you have is um, companies, AI developers using troves of data that has been scraped from the internet to train their AI models. And the question arises as to whether that, uh, that scraping of data could be deemed a copying under the copyright laws and be deemed an infringement. The content copiers, say, content owners are saying, yes, it is that uh, scraping images from the internet and text and metadata is traditional copying, while AI developers are saying, no, they're not storing the images, they're not copying them, they're just using them to train the AI model and to create something new and transformative. So that's the input side. And then the other interesting first impression issue that we are looking for guidance on is the output side. You have these programs then using this data that has been scraped and that's potentially protected by copyright laws or licenses to generate output. And the question becomes whether that output can be deemed an infringement of copyright, either because it's substantially similar to protected works, or perhaps because it's considered a derivative of the original work. And given the interesting issue that the original work might have been used to train the data, is that going to have an impact on the output side and whether it's viewed as copyright infringement? Well, so let's drill uh, down into those because those are fascinating questions to me. I, I guess the first part of what you just said uh, leads me to wonder whether someone, uh, when, whether someone can even own IP rights in artificial intelligence output if the output was created by a machine or a tool rather than created by a human being. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one, I would say, in this very unsettled area where we do have some initial guidance. Um, back in March of this year, the Copyright Office issued guidelines in which it basically reaffirmed the longstanding position of the office that the term author, as used in the Constitution and the copyright law, is intended to exclude non-humans and that copyright can only protect material that is the product of human creativity. 
That said, however, there are, of course, always gray areas. We know that machines can assist a human in creating something creative. Of course, a camera comes to mind and the way in which it assists a photographer who can, of course, get a registration on a photograph. Uh, the Copyright Office recently refused to issue a registration to uh, to Dr. Stephen Thaler, who, who claimed, who uh, identified his work as 100% created by AI, but it has granted registrations where there is a more significant level of human contribution. For example, um, in one case, it granted a copyright on the text uh, that was the output, but not on the AI-generated images. Um, if you're telling your chat BG, GB, excuse me, your chat GBT to to basically generate you a photo, a, a, a painting in the style of Monet's water lilies, you're probably not going to get a copyright registration. But if there's more of a human input in directing the AI program, there's probably room for tailoring your application so that you can ultimately get a copyright registration. And I think without oversimplifying it again, sort of like uh, I asked John uh, when it came to potential discriminatory impacts, um, I, I suspect that you can't simply hide behind artificial intelligence or generative artificial intelligence if some output is ultimately violating intellectual property rights of others. I think that's absolutely right. And we're seeing a variety of claims start to work their way through the courts. We don't yet have decisions in most of these cases, but uh, Getty Images has bought a, brought a very prominent lawsuit alleging uh, copyright infringement by Stability AI in the, uh, in the, the taking of millions of Getty images and the associated text and metadata and generating output that where you can see the Getty watermark on the Stability AI output. Um, we've got allegations of copyright infringement there, removal of copyright management information, trademark infringement in this case because the Getty mark appears. So those are interesting. That's an interesting case we're watching. Uh, there's another class action case brought by three artists against Stability AI who are alleging that the use of the training data to train the machine in the style of their works uh, violates their right to create derivative works, essentially, and that the output is an infringement as a result. Um, we've also seen a lot of, to go back to your licensing point, uh, Thomson Reuters is suing for tortious interference with a company that uh, let it, the Westlaw content of Thomson Reuters be used to train AI models, saying that that's beyond the scope of a license. Uh, we may see some name image and likeness uh, allegations um, to to address, you know, your musician background. Copyright law doesn't typically protect the voice. And it may be that if we're if we're instructing uh, machines to generate singing in the style of Mike Schmidt, that perhaps Mike Schmidt would have a right of publicity violation in that case. So we're seeing a lot of early cases that we're interested to see where they go. Well, if this hasn't given uh, all the listeners a headache uh, yet, I don't know what will. So many issues out there, but it's so important to stay on top of what's going on because things are definitely moving quickly. Lisa, if we assume that uh, the copying of intellectual property is actually happening with the use of AI tools, are there defenses to consider against allegations of infringement? So the biggest defense that, that I think IP lawyers are, are looking at here is the fair use defense. And that's the concept that there may be unauthorized copying allowed in circumstances if it's necessary to promote the advancement of science and the useful arts. Um, the fair use defense looks to the purpose and the character of the use and whether it's for commercial or nonprofit purposes. It looks to the nature of the copyright work copyrighted work the amount that's taken and the effect of the use upon the potential market for the work now interestingly the second circuit in 
2015 in the Google, if you recall the Google, when Google digitized all the books and allowed people to, to generate uh, search results as to whether, you know, certain words appeared in the books and it showed snippets of the book. Second Circuit held that was actually a fair use because the, uh, the Google books were not a market substitute for the books themselves. But just last Thursday, uh, the Supreme Court just issued a ruling in a long-running dispute with, between uh, the Andy Warhol Foundation and the rock photographer Lynn Goldsmith holding that Andy Warhol's transformation of pictures of prints uh, that Lynn Goldsmith had taken was not a fair use because just like Lynn Goldsmith, the Warhol Foundation was using them in the same way to license out to companies so that they were essentially replacements for the copyrighted work. And I think it'll be interesting to see the extent to which this fair use defense is going to be available to AI developers where you have artists who are making their content available uh, for training data. And so if AI developers are ignoring them, um, you know, maybe Maybe that's not going to be fair use or you have on the output side using AI generative works potentially as replacements for the original work. Again, there could be challenges to a fair use defense. You know, it's interesting because uh, years ago when social media came about, uh, labor and employment lawyers used to say all the time, we're not creating necessarily new claims uh, arising out of social media, but we are applying the old traditional claims to this new platform or this new technology. And it almost sounds sort of like you're saying much of the same thing. When you, when you talk about, you know, infringement, you talk about fair use. These are all terms that have been around forever, but we're trying to now in 2023 apply those same claims and defenses to a totally new technology, a totally new platform. Is that really what we're talking about? Do you expect there to be you know, a whole invention of new IP kinds of claims and defenses unique to this stuff? I, I think you're absolutely right. And I, too, have been thinking about social media. We were getting calls from clients about, what do you mean I can't put something, you know, that I found on the Internet up on my Instagram page? And our response was, you know, it's the same old principle that there are, if it's a subject to copyright ownership, just because it's available on the Internet doesn't mean it's available for use. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? And I think think we're going to see courts right going back to those traditional principles um, in evaluating questions of infringement and fair use. And so before we get into the regulatory part of this discussion, um, Lisa, what can companies that are interested in utilizing AI tools do to mitigate the risk of violating third party IP rights with the content that is created by the AI tools? I, I think that co that companies need to, in, in addition to all of the things that my labor and employment colleagues have mentioned, with respect to IP, they need to make sure that uh, the generative IT, uh, AI tools that they're using, that they can confirm that the training data has been properly licensed from the content creators or it's subject to open source licenses. You know, you don't want to, I know we, it seems like we're in the Wild West here, but it, we're really not. And if we're going back to these traditional principles, you know, companies need to use the same due diligence that they would otherwise use and ask their AI providers if the, the systems have been trained on protected content. That's great. You have absolutely provided two of the good sound bites for this. Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same. And we're not exactly in the wild, wild west yet. So uh, we've got a whole bunch of great takeaways from uh, just this episode. Um, I want to bring uh, Varun into the discussion here. It is an understatement to say that federal, state, and local governments, both here and internationally, are watching these AI issues closely. Uh, Varun, if we can, let's get a bit of the lay of the land on the U.S. side. Who are the key players in the current Biden administration and in Congress in this AI space? And, and thank you as well for joining the table discussion here. 
Thanks for having me, Mike. Um, earlier this month, the vice president hosted the CEOs of a handful of AI companies at the forefront of AI innovation. She was joined by senior administration officials, including Gina Raimondo, the Secretary of Commerce, as well as some of the president's most trusted and senior group of advisors, such as the president's chief of staff, uh, his national security advisor, as well as the heads of the Domestic Policy Council and the National Economic Council. The attendees list points to the seriousness with which the Biden administration is viewing the recent developments in the field of AI. Uh, moving on to Congress, both the Senate and the House of Representatives respectively have bipartisan groups focused on advancing AI. Uh, they are the Senate AI Caucus and the House AI Caucus. Their main objective is to help connect members and staff with AI experts in industry, academia, as well as the executive branch. In the past, they've served as a springboard for bipartisan legislation on, on artificial intelligence. Um, I'd follow that group closely with members in both uh, chain. I'd follow that group closely along with members in both chambers who either one, represent pockets of our country that are home to technology companies, or two, have a track record of working on such matters. And, and so what are some of the key developments from a regulatory and a legislative standpoint on AI that everyone should be aware of at the moment? In recent weeks and months, we've seen significant activity on AI issues in Washington. You know, we haven't even reached the six month mark here and Congress has close to two dozen bills uh, that they've introduced on artificial intelligence. It's a testament to the sudden burst of interest on AI within the halls of Congress. Uh, some key regulatory and legislative accomplishments that I like here, that I highlight here today, uh, that Andy also mentioned uh, uh, at the onset is, at the beginning of the year, uh, on, uh, on Jan 26, 2023, uh, the National Institutes for Standard and Technology released version 1.0 of an AI risk management framework. On March 3rd, the Departments of Treasury and Commerce communicated to Congress their plans to regulate outbound investments on sensitive technologies, including artificial intelligence. Um, and then on April 11th, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, NTIA, an agency within the uh, Department of Commerce, which advises the president on telecommunications and information policy issues, they issued a request for comments regarding AI accountability. And then finally, moving on to the legislative uh, uh, spectrum, last month, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer announced that he would spearhead efforts to develop a legislative framework that outlines a new regulatory regime for artificial intelligence. So, uh Congress and the Biden administration clearly have taken a lot of interest in AI, as, as you said, uh, not only in some of these uh, bills and initiatives that have come out, um, but also as demonstrated by the uh, the White House meeting recently convened by uh, Vice President Harris and the CEOs of four American companies at the forefront of AI intervention, uh, innovation. I'm sorry. Varun, what do you anticipate is coming next from a legislative or regulatory front? If we were sort of looking at the next six months to the next year, um, what can we expect, again, on the United States side to see uh, from the legislative and regulatory stuff? Currently, the U.S. does not have a comprehensive legal framework to regulate AI's development. But people would be mistaken to think that the lack of a symbolic legislative effort similar to the EU's AI Act uh, as a data point for an AI governmental effort in shambles, you know, far from it. Thus far, Congress has been focused on capacity building for artificial intelligence. What's next? We can expect those efforts to get more granular, meaning proposals for new regulation on how AI systems are being used in the government and private sector. We think that this is going to be an issue that is going to be addressed more so on the federal side than on the state and local, or is it not mutually exclusive and, and we're likely to see initiatives like this on federal and state and local ends? Yeah, I think uh, it's an all-hands-on-deck approach. I, I, I think there's so much activity happening, not just at the federal level, uh, but also so much of this is happening um, at the city level and at the state level. And Andy, I want to bring you back in here for a moment, um, because one of the federal agencies, the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, uh, has been active on a whole bunch of things. 
Um, is the FTC having anything to say about companies and AI at the moment? Oh, it, it does have many things to say about companies and AI. Of course it does. I wouldn't have asked you if it didn't. <laughs> Come on. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the FTC has been very active in this uh, area. How can it do this without the comprehensive legal AI framework that Varun mentioned? Well, the FTC has broadly interpreted its authority under Section 5 of the FTC Act to bring enforcement proceedings against companies which engage in what the FTC considers are unfair or deceptive trade practices. Under Commissioner Lena Khan, it's now expanding into AI and prescribing rules of the road, just as it's doing with privacy and cybersecurity. So in a 2021 blog post, the FTC commented that selling or using a racially biased algorithm would constitute an unfair trade practice. On April 25th of this year, the FTC issued a joint statement along with the DOJ, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and the EEOC on discrimination and bias in automated systems. In the joint statement, the FTC stated that it may violate the FTC Act to use automated tools that have discriminatory impacts or to make claims about AI that are not substantiated or to deploy AI before taking adequate steps to assess and mitigate risks. Finally, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the FTC has assertively required firms to destroy algorithms and other work product that were trained on data that was collected in violation of consumers' privacy rights. It's interesting because we know, for those, again, uh, avid listeners of this podcast, we've talked more recently about the FTC and them becoming more active in the context of non-competes and restrictive covenants. Uh, and there's a whole slew of challenges and some others that we're we're awaiting as their proposed rulemaking proceeds through the process. Um, is this, you know, one of the challenges there in the area of non-competes with the FTC is that the FTC simply doesn't have jurisdiction or authority to regulate um, non-compete agreements under this guise of acting to prevent unfair or deceptive trade practices. We expect that to be a similar concern or challenge when we're dealing with AI. Yes, I mean it's already a concern in in privacy. The FTC's mandate to regulate privacy, or at least regulate it as comprehensively as uh, Chairperson Khan is trying to do, is 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 very much in doubt. But it certainly hasn't stopped them, and I don't expect it to stop them in uh, in AI as well. As with privacy, I, I imagine the uh, you know the limits of the FTC's writ is going to be determined in the courts. Yeah, it's it's fascinating because you have this tension where these agencies um, on the executive side, but then the legislators. Uh, are all really trying to act quickly when it comes to AI and, and generative AI, but then there's going to be some of this pushback to see if the federal government is acting beyond its jurisdiction uh, when it's trying to uh, take some fast action. John, I want to bring you back in as well from the labor and employment perspective. What's your sense of the kinds of new laws or regulations we might be seeing regarding generative AI in the workplace, whether at the federal, the state, or the local levels? Thanks, Mike. I, I think that what we're going to see in the employment space is most likely going to be things that kind of piggyback a little bit off of the kind of guidance that we've already been seeing from the, the EEOC, uh, more relating to kind of traditional HR functions and screening, at least at first, than, than to stuff that is specific to generative AI. So, for instance, uh, you know, on the local level in New York City, uh, there is a local law 144, which is going to start being enforced uh, in, in July, uh, that regulates the use of AI, uh, and I don't think that they're really uh, dis uh, distinguishing between generative AI and other AI, uh, regulates the use of AI in employment decisions. Um, and it talks about before employers or HR departments use automated employment decisions, uh, they generally have to conduct a bias audit. They've got to notify candidates or employees uh, about the use of those tools, notify affected persons that they can request an accommodation or alternative process. Um, Illinois uh, fairly recently has uh, enacted an artificial intelligence video interview act, uh, which governs the use of AI to assess video interviewees. Um, Maryland's got a law about use of AI and facial recognition technology. Um, and, uh, you know, more and more uh, states are 
at least putting together uh, commissions and, and advisory councils. For instance, Texas um, is, is looking to establish an AI advisory council to monitor how uh, state agencies in Texas are going to use AI systems. Uh, but I think in, in the short term, it is more likely that what we're going to see is uh, to the extent that generative AI is implicated, it's going to be um, in the kind of EEOC framework of um, elimination of bias uh, in employment decisions. Yeah, and uh, Janice, uh, to bring you back in as well, uh, what recommendations do you have then for employers who do want to regulate the use of Gen AI in the workplace? You talked about policies before. What What recommendations or takeaways would you have for employers there? Yeah, so if your policies don't currently address the usage of AI, generative AI specifically, um, then consider, you know, whether you would want to implement a policy. I think the answer is likely yes. Um, and if you do want your employees to use generative AI, then you should be clear in your policies what is allowed, what is not allowed, to what extent you allow its usage. Maybe it's only allowed for initial drafts for certain employees. You know, who can use uh, generative AI, whether approval is required and from whom um, maybe approval is required, but later in the process, maybe when output is created prior to it being used for a specific end result, that there are certain approvals that need to be obtained from a supervisor, potentially. Um, consider whether the work product maybe should be labeled in a certain way. Maybe when you use generative AI, there should be an internal stamp or marker in the product so that internally folks can kind of look at that with a closer eye for additional scrutiny. Consider whether you'll audit any results that are used. And obviously, there are some laws that require audits. Um, consider whether you are going to be auditing for potential bias. Consider whether you will ask employees to move forward with maybe reporting any bias that they come across as a day-to-day -day user. And obviously, there are some other things here to consider, such as compliance with applicable law and how your policies will address that. But I think really the, the great emphasis here, I said this before, but I, I really want to mention it again, is that the emphasis really has to be that it's the human user. The human user is the person who's ultimately responsible for any output, regardless of generative AI's usage in, in creating it. And something else that, you know, we would be remiss if we don't mention is the fact that because this is developing um, so tremendously and so quickly, I'm sure that what we're discussing Hey, maybe in two years from now will be a little different. So review your AI usage policy regularly, modify it based on any developments that you come across. And if you are going to be using generative AI in the workplace, it would be, you know, very prudent to train your employees on how it works. Folks are enamored by what it can do, but don't really know how it works. You know, train your employees how generative AI content is generated, how it works, its limitations how it should and can or cannot be used, et cetera. And, and lastly, what I'll mention here is also consider what steps you will take at, at your business to comply with applicable federal, state, and local law and keep it close on those because I do think they will continue to evolve. Yeah, that's a great point, Janice. As fast as all of this came upon us, uh, that's how fast it's going to continue to change and develop. Uh, so you shouldn't be thinking about this as just a frozen moment in time now for purposes of your policies and your training and you're really you're thinking on this issue. Um, we only have a couple minutes left here. Uh, I know we could speak for hours on this topic. Um, this is a good part to promote uh, our upcoming next Labor and Employment Monthly webinar, which is going to be on June 22nd at 1 o'clock Eastern, from 1 o'clock to 2 o'clock Eastern, on just these issues, on AI and generative AI. So if you're not on our mailing list and don't get the registration links sent to you directly, uh, feel free to go to our website, cozen.com, uh, and look for that upcoming June 22nd webinar if you're interested in registering for it, or you can reach out to me as well, and I'm happy to give you the registration link. Uh, we're going to be talking about this very topic, and as you probably gathered already just from the close to an hour that we've been talking about uh, this stuff on this episode, it's really about the questions. It's identifying the questions. There are some answers that are out there at the moment but not everything has its answers, and, and it may be some time before all of your questions are answered, but the important part is to identify and flag what the questions are. 
And it's also clear, I think, that we're not just talking about labor and employment questions, though, for purposes of this podcast and, you know, what Janice and John and I do on a day to day basis is employment law focused. But this is a multidisciplinary issue, corporate privacy, intellectual property, regulatory. uh, And there are so many other practice areas uh, that are impacted when you talk about artificial intelligence and the use of generative artificial intelligence. So in the last couple of minutes, with all of that said, and and you all have been so terrific and and so substantive and helpful, I want to give each of you a 30-second opportunity uh, to give us either one last takeaway from your perspective or one prognostication. Go ahead and play Nostradamus if you want, or you can give me both. You can give me a takeaway and a prognostication. I don't care. I'm not going to cut you off. Um, but Andy, let's start with you. What do you want our listeners to take away from what you've been saying so far today? Well, not surprisingly, I see more aggressive FTC and other regulatory activity uh, around AI. And, and where I see the regulators going, if I may make a prognostication, is essentially requiring adoption of an accountability, non-discrimination, and transparency framework, like the NIST framework, uh, either as a prescriptive requirement, as the FTC is trying to do with uh, cybersecurity, or as a safe harbor to avoid liability. Andy Baer, chair of our technology, privacy, and data security practice group here at Cozen O'Connor. Lisa Ferrari uh, from our intellectual property department and the co-chair of our copyright practice here at Cozen. What is your takeaway and or prognostication? So I think the that last week's Supreme Court decision in the Warhol case, although it did not deal with AI, is going to have a significant impact on uh, AI. And I think that it's going to really uh, force AI developers to be developing protocols for their training data, to be sure they're obtaining licenses, addressing copyright ownership issues. Um, and I think users of AI similarly are going to be under increased pressure to know to do their due diligence and know where their AI models come from, because I think there's no assurance that fair use is going to save everybody from all the infringement issues here. It's a great point. Uh, Varun Krovi, um, in our Washington, D.C. office, senior principal of Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies. What would you like to leave for us from a takeaway and or prognostication standpoint? That Washington is open to business and an education. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a huge advocate for clients uh, uh, engaging with agency staff and lawmakers. The most obvious virtue of engagement is that you can improve the laws that most affect your organization. So let's get to work. Yeah. How can businesses, just at that point, how can businesses and and leadership and organizations uh, interpreting this interest that you've been identifying in Washington, how can they have their voices heard on these kinds of things? Yeah, well, the first thing that they can do is to engage with uh, Washington, D.C., right, uh, uh, with agency staff as well as with Congress. A second equally important but often overlooked benefit of engagement is that it strengthens organizations. When you get involved in this process, you raise your profile amongst elected officials, the media, and industry partners. Great. Thank you for that. Uh, Janice Agresti in our Labor and Employment Department uh, and one of the leaders of our Cozen O'Connor L&E Artificial Intelligence Practice Team. What's the uh, takeaway or prognostication that you're leaving us with? The takeaway I'll I'll leave uh, listeners with here today is that ignoring it will not make it go away. So while the technology may not be fully understood, it may not be liked, it may be, you know, whatever limitations there, there may be in your eyes, address it head on, address it head on as an organization, as an employer, and consider how and when you want that used. And I I believe, you know, that it will continue to evolve. And so keep a pulse on these changes, but address it head on. Great. And uh, we will end with the last word on the takeaway of prognostication with you, uh, John Carrigan, also in our labor and employment department, and also one of the leaders uh, on our Cozen O'Connor Labor and Employment Artificial Intelligence Practice Team, what say you? A couple of prognostications. Uh, one is I think that we are going to see more in the way of union organizing efforts uh, in some traditionally white-collar type professions. Um, and a related one is I think we might see um, some 
industry organizations, uh, for instance, the American Bar Association, uh, groups like that uh, outside of the organized labor context, but throwing their weight around a little bit more in terms of setting forth proposed rules uh, and recommendations uh, for their membership with respect to use of AI. That's great. I can't thank uh, all of you enough. Uh, this has been tremendously helpful and a great starting point for further discussion here. From my standpoint, uh, you know, when it comes to takeaways, uh, nobody here is saying what your organization has to do or how they have to do X or Y. But I think one of the biggest takeaways is that your organization should at least be starting to think about these issues. And not just think about these issues, but think about these issues in the same kind of way that we've been presenting them in this past hour or so. And that is from a multidisciplinary angle. It is not just the labor and employment issues. It's not just about what your employees are doing and what you want your employees to do or not to do. It is about the corporate and privacy issues. It is about the intellectual property issues. And it is about making sure that you are complying with existing regulatory and legal framework and perhaps even having your voice have an impact on what's going to come down the road when it comes to new regulatory and legislative impacts. So this is really the way that you should be thinking about these issues from an organizational standpoint. That is all the time we have. I tried to cram a lot in an hour for you, but again, hopefully we've started the discussion off well for you and that this was valuable. Um, I want to thank all of my guests again, John Carrigan, Janice Agresti, Andy Baer, Lisa Ferrari, Varun Crovey, all of my terrific colleagues. Thank you all so much for being here. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much. That was a really informative podcast episode on a really important issue. I hope you found it to be informative and useful as well. As I said, the discussion is just starting. There'll be a lot more discussion on artificial intelligence and generative AI in the coming weeks and months. Until the next time, I hope all of your labor is productive.